Welcome to another edition of Christopher Hoppy Presents The Chamber. This podcast will feature Clive Barker's Hellraiser from 1987. What's your pleasure, sir? That was the question that the Asian man asked Frank Cotton, the anti-hero of Clive Barker's Hellraiser. He replied, the box. Of all the horror films of the 1980s, I can't think of one that has influenced me more. To this day, it is one of the most original and unique films of the horror genre. There is nothing that comes close. I truly believe that the film and its creator, Clive Barker, warped my mind in a way that allowed me to open my own doors to the limits and beyond. Now, what I find ironic is that of all my high school friends back then, I'm the only one that genuinely loved Hellraiser. To me, it was brilliant. To them, it was okay, or it was just too weird. And I remember that when I tried to see this film for the very first time, the experience was breaking a taboo, especially in a very conservative suburb of Chicago that I lived in. The powers that be would do everything in their power to prevent a 14-year-old boy discover a horror film about opening the gates of hell and invoking demons. With a little luck, I was able to rent the film, and nothing could prepare me for what I was about to see. Hellraiser was the best horror film I had experienced since the original Nightmare on Elm Street. This podcast, I'm going to discuss the background of the film, the production, some of the promotions, what the critics thought of it, and I'm going to analyze some of the issues that the film contains, like its social and psychosexual ones. Now, Hellraiser is based on a novella called The Hellbound Heart, which is written by the highly acclaimed British author Clive Barker. The novella and film have relatively the same plot. And Barker sums up this plot as saying, it's about a man named Frank Cotton who does a deal with the forces of darkness in search of the ultimate physical and sensual experience. He solves a puzzle box. He opens gates to hell. He summons the Cenobites. And then he is torn apart for his troubles. After Frank has been taken back to hell, we meet Frank's brother, Rory, and his wife, Julia. And they're moving into the same house where Frank solved the box. And in a flashback, we discover that Frank and Julia had an affair before the wedding. But their coupling had had in every regard but the matter of her acquiescence, all the aggression and the joylessness of rape. Memories sweetened events, of course, and in the four years and five months since the afternoon, she replayed the scene often. Now in remembering it, the bruises were trophies of their passion, her tears proof positive of her feelings for him. During the move, Rory cuts his hand and drops blood in the room where Frank was taken. As soon as the droplets hit the floor and they're seeped into and somehow Frank comes back to life. But he's too weak. He's skinless. He has to find a way to become whole again. Now, he achieves this by getting his lover, Julia, to kill men for him so he can drink their life essence. However, the plan is discovered by Kirsty, a close friend of Rory, who also has a huge crush on him. She flees from Frank and ignorantly solves the box and summons the Cenobites. In exchange for her life, she tells them that she will lead them to Frank so that they don't take her back to hell and take him instead. But Frank kills Rory and steals his skin. But Kirsty sees through the illusion. Then Frank betrays Julia by killing her with his knife because he wants Kirsty instead. 
and Kirsty lets the Cenobites rip Frank apart. At the end, Kirsty is left to be the keeper of the box. Now, some of the most unique elements of Barker's tale of the horrific are lust and perversity. And it's two very important things. And they're the Cenobites in the box. The Cenobites are beings from hell that offer experiences which are far beyond that which this world can provide. They are experts in giving their victims refined pleasure, and even more so with refined pain. Scars cover every inch of their flesh, which is cosmetically punctured and sliced and infibulated, then dusted down with ash. They smell of vanilla and are invisible and inaudible to people who have not solved the box. Like any other demon from the outer reaches, they must be summoned by a device. This device was known as the box, or by its proper name, the Le Marchand's configuration. The box was designed to be a puzzle, and when it's solved, it plays a short rondo that is added to the further of solver progresses. And when it is finally solved, it opens the schism so that the Cenobites can cross into our world and offer pleasure and pain indivisible. Now, the box, in my mind, has always been a psychotic version of the Rubik's Cube. That guilty pleasure from the 1980s that almost everyone had in their home. And the Cenobites were the most f- intriguing monster to hit the screen since H.R. Giger's biological nightmare, The Alien, from 1979's film. First, we have the leader, Pinhead, who is played by Doug Bradley, who immortalized the role of Pinhead for all the subsequent sequences. He has pale white skin of a corpse and a grid on his bald head in which large pins are driven into the intersections. Next, there is the female Cenobite, who is adorned with the same pale skin and a nail through her nose and a wire through her cheeks, pulling apart a split in her neck, which makes her speak in a raspy whisper. And she's the only Cenobite with hair. She has two fine hairs stretching horizontally from her head. The third is Butterball. He's ghostly pale, mute, and very fat. His ears have been cut off, and he wears blind man's glasses to hide his sewn-up eyes, and he constantly fingers the wound in his belly, and he licks his lips. Our fourth Cenobite is the Chatterer. This Cenobite is yellowish-colored and mute. He clicks his teeth together constantly because the skin around his mouth is held open by four hooks connected to wires that stretch around his head. His ears are also cut off, and his eyes and nostrils are covered because of the scarring on his face. And finally, we have the engineer, the guardian of hell. It's a salamander-like, yellowish demon with four arms and a sharp tail, kind of like a scorpion. In a behind-the-scene look at both film director Clive Barker and his actors said the monsters were like nothing that the general public had ever seen before. And what's interesting is that the idea of the otherworldly Cenobites can be traced back to the horrific tales of H.P. Lovecraft. For instance, in Lovecraft's Shadow Over Innsmouth, a tale about dirty old men involved in the perverted worship of perverted beings. It's very similar to those who solved the box and summoned the sadistic Cenobites. In reference to Lovecraft's other dimensional beings, Andy Black from Necronomicon states that Barker is one of the only current filmmakers who is mining the rich seam of Lovecraftian creativity, 
with his expanding Hellraiser series featuring the other dimensional Cenobites, grotesque monsters in labyrinth corridors and caves. Protagonists are lured by the omnipotent Cenobites who wield both punishment and power upon their victims, together with surprising universal enlightenment. In fact, the Le Marchand configuration is virtually identical to Lovecraft's creation of the Necronomicon, which is a blasphemous book that contained incantations that would aid the great old ones, as well as other spells and ceremonies designed to defeat them. Now, the box could be solved to open the gate, or if it was solved backwards, it can send the Cenobites back to hell. And Barker himself says that Lovecraft's fiction is one of the cornerstones of modern horror. His dream stories, referring to a collection known as the Dream Cycle, are a perfect introduction to his work, a unique and visionary world of wonder, terror, and delirium. For further information on H.P. Lovecraft and his monsters and the great old ones in the book, The Necronomicon, please refer to my other episodes, six and seven, where I go into extensive information about Lovecraftian cinema and literature. Now, one of the reasons why Hellraiser is such a great film is that Clive Barker, it's his directorial debut, which means it's so fresh and it's exciting. And it showed throughout the entire production of this film. Um, It's unique because it's not your average slasher picture. Barker even admits it's not like a hunt and slash picture full of teenagers cut to pieces. Um, It's rather mature and adult. And he thinks that the people, they're suffering with what he calls adult problems. Uh, It's about a middle-aged woman, Julia. She has an affair years earlier with her husband's evil brother, Frank, who since vanished in a quest for the intense carnal experiences. Barker calls these very adult problems. The film has something that most horror films from the 80s did not have. It actually had people who can act. And the film has an excellent cast. First of all, we have Andrew Robinson, best known from Dirty Harry, as the role of Larry Cotton. He's the good brother. Now in the novella, he's known as Rory. Claire Higgins, who is acclaimed from British stage, is playing a very complex and cold Julia. The two actors play evil brother Frank. There's Sean Chapman, who plays Frank the Man, and then Oliver Smith is the repulsive skinless Frank. Barker made one major change in novella to film, and that's in the story of Kirsty, and that's played by Ashley Lawrence. Um, In the novella, Kirsty is a friend of Rory's who has a big crush on him. But in the film, Kirsty is now Larry's daughter from a first marriage. And the change is definitely for the better because it adds more to the story. It gives more of a perverse edge to the novella that it didn't have as much. And it's surprising because Barker's written work is usually far more depraved than his motion pictures. Before the film started, Clive gathered his cast together and he asked them to give a real performance. He said, this is a movie with real relations in it and human emotions. The only difference is that you'll be playing scenes with characters who are dead or people that are skinned. The film itself was shot in 86 and it's relatively modest budget location in Northern London. Um, One interview from behind the scenes of Hellraiser, Robinson said that the people are either going to absolutely love this film 
or they're absolutely going to be disgusted. There would be absolutely no middle ground. Um, when the trailers were shown on television, they got a blessing from the master of the American horror novel, and that's Stephen King. The quote said, I've seen the future of horror. His name is Clive Barker. And the tagline of the horror trailer said, will tear your soul apart. Now, Clive Barker's Hellraiser was first released in Chicago September 18th, 1987. Critics said the film was way too gory, but it did in fact have some merit. Dave Kerr, critic of the Chicago Tribune, said, though over-explicit and underdeveloped, Barker's Hellraiser is a horror film with enough personality ambition to rise slightly above the run of the mill of the genre. He concludes that Hellraiser, unfortunately, is all set up and no follow through. Barker seems unable to bring his to any satisfying climax. I think we saw a different film because I was blown away. But he's a critic for the Chicago Tribune, so I always feel like sometimes that these. You know, critics have to maintain some essence of decorum where they can't say, I like horror movies, because if they say, I like horror movies, they'll lose their credibility. Um, there's a few critics that actually enjoy horror films, but they're rare. Um, I guess they feel that most horror films are too lowbrow. Um, but I digress. Now, two of the most prominent issues that I want to talk about in Hellraiser are the ones that address the social and the psychosexual aesthetics. Now, Barker presents the root of his horror in the breaking down of a nuclear family. The essential part about Hellraiser is that the main characters are essentially all part of one family, but it's a very dysfunctional one. First, take a look at Frank Cotton. Frank is a very primal character with very basic desires. He needs violent pleasure, and he carries a symbolic weapon, a switchblade knife. It's very phallic. He uses it to get what he wants. In a flashback sequence, he uses it to attack Julia by cutting off her lingerie while she's still lying on top of her own wedding dress. Then after the wedding, he mysteriously leaves. He travels around the world for sensual experiences, always trying to reach that next plateau. He discovers this world offers him nothing anymore. Therefore, he seeks the box. He purchases it in Asia from a derelict vendor that has extremely dirty fingernails. And Frank solves the box, and the Cenobites give him an experience beyond the limits. Pain and pleasure indivisible. Frank goes to hell. And when Larry's blood hits the floor, Frank is allowed to cross back over the schism, which is the barrier between heaven and hell. But when Frank comes back, he's still using that blade. He even tries it to attack Kirsty, but he fails because Kirsty pulls out some of Frank's own guts out of his skinless stomach. Frank even continues his pursuit after he's stolen the skin of his brother. He tries to comfort his new daughter in the disguise of Larry, but Frank's one-track mind causes his own failure by saying, 
come to daddy. Larry never used that phrase. And as a result of his depraved sexual desires, Frank is literally torn apart. Then we have Julia. At the beginning of the film, Julia is very aloof and almost like a victim. But this all changes when she encounters her former lover, Frank, in the damp room. When she agrees to help him to become whole, she is no longer the victim. She starts going to singles bars and she picks up these sleazy men. And an interesting element to her carnage is that with each killing that she performs, the more glamorous she appears to the audience. Also, I might add that that first killing is the messiest. And yet somehow when she gets the blood smeared on her, she seems to work as a gooey red fountain of youth. The great thing about Barker is that not only does he base his disillusion in the family, but he puts a twist on it. Kerr continues on this. He says, Barker brings a particular bitter twist to this standard setup, depicting a world in which affection is only an ashen memory and the characters are almost wholly devoted to self-gratification. Supernatural arrives, not to reinstate the traditional family model as in Steven Spielberg's films, but to inject an extra dose of sexual anxiety. Now, even though the characters are into self-gratification, the film does have that traditional moralistic ending. Evil is punished by being sent back to hell, and goodness is rewarded to live another day. Clive Barker's Hellraiser is a horror film that takes the viewer to the limits of horror and then goes beyond. Hellraiser is a film with complex motivations for what its characters do. It is not the typical slasher film with a maniac with an axe who runs through a sorority hacking up bimbos. It's unique to the genre of horror because it deals with the oldest and strongest emotion which is known to mankind, and that is fear, and the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. Thank you, Mr. H.P. Lovecraft. The film is unique because it fills with strong acting and it has believable characters. We actually do feel for the characters in this film. We might even feel something for Frank and Julia because we witness firsthand what the mysterious Cenobites can do to a human. We definitely feel sadness for Kirsty, who lost her father, And the reason that we feel like this is for these characters that even though they may look nightmarish, surreal, repulsive, or nauseating, the things that drive all the characters in Hellraiser is their motivations and wants are the exact same that drive us. We all feel desire sometimes, but sometimes we need to learn not let it control everything we do or feel. I think back to how I felt the very first time that I watched Hellraiser. I'd felt like I solved some kind of puzzle and crossed into the threshold of a whole new world with my eyes wide open. One of my favorite thoughts about this film was that it left so many questions to be answered, like, are there really devices out there that can do such things? After all, much of this world do we really know? We have such sights to show you.